please uh, keep that open. Let's pray. Please help us now, Heavenly Father. You know how we feel as we come to your word, some of us conscious of not being nearly as warm as we would like to be. Some of us very tired, some of us distracted, caught up already thinking about things in the week ahead. Some of us just not that interested in what you have to say. And we know because you tell us that Satan hovers longing to snatch away your word before it can take root in our lives. And so please, by your spirit, help us now to hear you and to receive your word with faith. And we ask this for the glory of the Lord Jesus and in his name. Amen. We know now some of the danger signs that should warn us off certain church leaders. We saw some of them from the first half of chapter 11, if you were with us last week. So do you remember we saw watch out for Christian leaders who maybe use the language of faith. So they talk about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the gospel, things like that, but are actually saying something very different about them to what God is saying to us in here in the Bible. And then watch out for Christian leaders who, while maybe outwardly very impressive, are really just very self-serving rather than actually serving the needs of others, if we ever find ourselves in a church or maybe another Christian organisation where those sorts of things are going on, it is time for us to speak up and maybe get out if things don't change. Because behind leaders like that stands Satan himself, which sounds kind of shocking, doesn't it? But that's what we saw Paul saying very clearly there in those opening verses of chapter 11. Satan, who loves to work by presenting evil as something good and attractive. So if those are the kinds of things that should put us off Christian leaders if we see them, what kinds of things shouldn't put us off? What kinds of things should we not worry about when we see them? Actually the opposite, make us lean in with expectation and gratitude. If you go wandering around the countryside looking for mushrooms, I'm guessing, I've never done this, but I'm guessing there are basically two things you're looking for, aren't there? You're looking for bad signs, this is a poisonous one, and you're looking for good signs, this one's okay. Well, it's the second, more positive set of signs Paul is getting us thinking about today. What kinds of things might be signs that someone is actually walking right in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus, that God is at work in and through that person's life today. It's an important question, isn't it? Here we are at the moment as churches looking for a new rector to replace peers, beginning by looking at Andy Kearns from Arborfield. Hopefully you've picked that up. We've tried to be really open about that in emails and stuff. Or, or maybe some of us one day, but like Mark and Rachel Stevens just doing at the moment, find ourselves in a new place looking for a new church to settle into. What kinds of things shouldn't put us off if we see signs of them in someone's life? It applies to us in other ways as well. I think this actually, maybe we've got a friend or a family member who's not yet a Christian and we'd love to introduce them to a couple of Christian friends or invite them along to an event to hear a talk perhaps about Jesus. What kinds of friends are we keenest to introduce them to? 
kinds of speakers are we eager for them to come and hear? What kinds of things shouldn't put us off introducing them to someone or inviting them to hear someone speak? That's the kind of thing that we find ourselves thinking about in this passage today. And there are two things Paul says should not put us off. Two things that might actually be a mark that the Lord really is at work in and through someone's life. They're two things that might come as a bit of a surprise to us, actually. Suffering and weakness. Really? I get that thing with politicians sometimes, don't we? When suddenly they they spy the possibility of high office. And so suddenly they start doing things that are designed to make themselves look more impressive in the eyes of the world. So they lose weight, perhaps, or get a makeover, or a new haircut, or get photographed while they're out jogging or at the gym. You know, trying to present themselves as vibrant, and healthy and strong, the kind of person trouble just bounces off like water off a good raincoat. Because they think, don't they, that is how to get credibility in the eyes of the world. And in many ways, they're right, it is. Well, maybe in the world, but not in the church, surely. We're not that shallow, are we, we might think. Well, I don't know, actually. I don't know about you, but if I'm honest, the kind of people I'm most drawn to and most want to be like... They're the kind of people who don't suffer and they look strong. Very often the kind of Christians I'm most glad to introduce people to, they're the kind of people who look like they're doing really well in every way. Life is almost trouble free. But that's really not how it should be, Paul is saying here. Signs of suffering, signs of weakness, they shouldn't be off-putting at all. In fact, they might just be signs that the Lord is at work in and through someone's life in a very powerful way indeed. They're extraordinary verses we're in in the middle of, in the middle of at the moment, aren't they? Maybe you got a sense of that as we read them together just now. Paul, you can't say that, we want to say to him at various points here, don't we? And it's actually kind of reassuring, therefore, that he begins in the way he does. Do you notice verse 16? I repeat, because he's picking up where he started off at chapter 11, verse 1. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. So if at any point in today's passage you find yourself thinking what Paul is saying sounds crazy or worldly, or like he's completely out of his mind, I know, I think he would say. I get that. I feel that too. But we're going to go with him on this because it really is his his kind of last gasp attempt to get these Corinthians who he loves so much to take on board something really important they're in danger of missing. Verse 18, since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. So those false teachers we've seen who were active in Corinth as Paul is writing, And in such danger of leading the church there astray, they're they're doing loads of boasting about how great they are. That's how you got an audience back in those days. Well, fine, Paul says, if I have to, I can play that game too. So let me show you some things that mark my ministry that should make you take me very seriously indeed. And broadly speaking, it's these two very surprising things, suffering and weakness. Just glance ahead to chapter 12, verse 10, very near the end of our reading. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, 
in difficulties. Let's look at those words again. Does that feel like something you could say and mean? Delight in those things. I don't think I could very often, if I'm honest. But that's where we're headed tonight. That's kind of the destination in the sat-nav that these verses are taking us towards. Let's see how they do that. So the first big thing that marks out Paul's ministry that should not put us off is suffering. End of verse 21, whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool. You really sense you can't bear having to talk like this, can't you? I also dare to boast about, are they Hebrews? Israelites, Abraham's descendants. You get the sense those false teachers were really making a massive deal about their Jewish heritage, don't you? Well, tick, 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 me too, says Paul. Verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I'm more, and that's a bold claim, isn't it? I'm a better servant of Christ than any of them. Come on, Paul, what's your evidence? And I wonder what sort of things we might expect him to talk about next. Well, look how many churches I've planted. The books I've written, the conferences I get invited to speak on, the number of mission trips I've been on, the size of the staff team I lead. No, none of that. Look where he does go instead in the verses that follow. I've worked harder. Middle of verse 23, very hard. Paul, we know from elsewhere, he he worked really hard, sometimes working as a tent maker. That was his trade during the day so that he could support himself as he then preached in the evenings. I've suffered more, verses 23 to 25, lots more. Prison so many times, floggings, beatings, having stones thrown at him and then being left for dead, shipwrecks, multiple shipwrecks. You see, I've faced more danger as well, he says, verse 26, in just about every place and from just about every side. From the moment Paul first turned to Jesus, there were people trying to get rid of him. I've gone without more as well, verse 27, sleep, food, shelter, drink, sometimes even clothing too. Can you imagine the shame? And then finally, verses 28 and 29, I've worried more too. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who's weak and I don't feel weak? Who's led into sin and I don't inwardly burn. I remember that was the thing that caught me by surprise when I started working for the church here quite a few years ago now. So my last two years in the MOD, I was working in an area where things were often quite tense, if I'm honest. And working with some bits of the armed forces who were necessarily often working right at the edge of the law. And that was quite stressful, trying to make sure things were on the right side of the law. And there was just one night in those two years when I can remember lying awake because I was worrying about something that might be going on. And then I started working for the church and suddenly, to my surprise, (laughs) there were quite a few nights like that. Thinking about a dear person, someone suddenly struggling with something massive. How are they going to cope? How are we going to support them in that? Or a precious person who seemed to be sort of hooked by some horrible sin or just drifting away from Jesus and absolutely refusing to talk about it. There's a fair bit of worrying about that kind of thing in one, let's be honest, quite little church like Barkham. I can't think how Paul coped with so many churches under his care. But you want to know the first big thing that marks out my ministry, he says, is suffering in so many ways. 
And then second, verse 30 onwards, it's weakness. So verse 30, if I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. And then the rest of chapter 11, that little bit there, Paul remembers a time, maybe you know the story from the book of Acts, when soon after he turned from opposing Jesus to following him, he did have to flee Damascus because people there were after him. And he was actually let down the city wall in a basket so that he could get away. And we read that story in the book of Acts and we think, oh, that's amazing, that's really exciting, Paul. No, for him it was a thing of shame, it seems, because it was an age when... I was hearing this week, apparently the Greeks would give an award to a soldier who was first up the wall in a battle. Because that was seen as the epitome of bravery and valour. Well, I was the opposite, Paul's saying. I was first down. As I was forced to flee in weakness. These opening verses of chapter 12 are really intriguing, aren't they? I must go on boasting. Although there's nothing to be gained, I'll go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. That's often something people are prone to boast about, isn't it? You know, it's the sort of thing that can make us think someone must be a very special kind of Christian indeed if they have extraordinary spiritual experiences. And those of us who don't seem to have them, we can end up feeling very inferior, can't we? And again, you can imagine the false teachers in Corinth talking lots about intense spiritual experiences they'd had. Oh, the time the Lord said this to me, the time he showed me that. Oh, I've had one too, Paul says. Although he's so reluctant to talk about it, he starts off at least talking about it as if it was something somebody else had happened to them. Do you notice? I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven and it's only a few verses later we realise he's actually talking about himself. Those of us who attempted to think intense spiritual experiences don't really happen. That if people claim to have had them, they've either been taken in or they're making it up somehow. Well, we need to think again, don't we? Because clearly they do sometimes. Those of us who are tempted to think they're meant to happen to all of us, and often, and kind of defy us, we need to think again, don't we? This was 14 years ago, and he's not said a word to anybody about it in that time and he doesn't much like talking about it now either and in any case it's not really the point because the thing he really wants us to focus on is what happened next so verse 7 pick it up there chapter 12 verse 7 therefore in order to keep me from becoming conceited because you could see how it might happen can't you an intense spiritual experience hey look at me what God has allowed me to see in order to stop that I was given a thorn in my flesh a messenger of Satan to torment me. Remember when you last got a splinter? You know what it's like to get a thorn in your flesh? If you're a gardener, you do. I often spend Sundays picking things out of my hands after gardening the day before. Really sore. You try to ignore it, you pretend it's not there, hope it will just go away. You can't in the end, it's just too painful. Well, to stop me getting proud, God allowed Satan to put something like that in my life, Paul is saying. Quite what the thing was, we don't know. Could have been an ongoing illness, perhaps. Maybe something to do with his eyes. There are loads of clues in the New Testament. Paul had real problems with his eyes. 
Maybe it's just ongoing opposition, because we know wherever he went, people followed him around to try and get him into trouble and bring him down. Maybe it was the false teachers. Whatever it was, though, it was agony. Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, no, basically. And that's striking, isn't it? When we think how sometimes people try to big themselves up with stories of how God answered prayers in exactly the way they ask. You know, I prayed for healing and it happened. That kind of thing. Well, let me tell you about a time it didn't happen, Paul says. Three times, in fact. If you know what it is not to have prayers answered in the way you want, you're in very good company. It's just God doesn't just say no, does he? Verse 9, extraordinary words. He said to me, my my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So I know it hurts, the Lord says to Paul. I know this thing makes you feel weak and look weak. It makes you weak. But I'm not taking it away. Because in my grace and my kindness, I will give you all you need to cope. I promise you'll be okay. And actually, I'm going to do even more, too. I'm going to use this weakness of yours to show you and others my power in ways that would otherwise never be seen. Suffering and weakness, two things we don't naturally welcome. We're not meant to go looking for them. It can be very distressing and frightening to find ourselves suddenly in the middle of them. But there are very signs that we're meant to avoid someone, that God has somehow stepped away, that we should steer clear of their ministry, that he's left me if I suffer, or you if you suffer, or us as a church if suddenly we become aware of our weakness in new ways. Not at all. Because after all, suffering and weakness, who do those two words apply to better than anyone? Who knew those two things better than any of us ever will? It's the Lord Jesus, isn't it? All through his life, and more and more so the closer he got to the cross. And yet where and when in our world has God shown his power in the most remarkable way? It is right there at the cross, isn't it? As he rescues his people and sets them free and gives life to this world. So is it really any surprise to find the Lord taking that pattern we see in Jesus and then kind of pressing it into the lives of those who serve him today? Into our lives? As we seek to follow him today, I don't think it's any surprise at all, is it? Power made known in suffering and made perfect in weakness. Not just because that backdrop of weakness and suffering makes God's power stand out all the more like a really dark background behind a precious jewel at the jewellers. There's more of a connection between these things than that. It's that in this world, so often, the way God does his most powerful, glorious works of all is in and through the weakest, most painful things of all. 
Weakness and suffering, they're not just the setting for God's power. They're often the means of it too. And that's really transforming, isn't it? We, we naturally think God is working powerfully in the moment someone is healed or recovers from their illness. And of course he is, and it's wonderful, and we should praise him for that. But this says he might well be working even more powerfully in the moment when someone falls ill. When the illness doesn't go away. We see answered prayers for a new job as a sign of God's power. And of course it is. They are. But this says it might well be in the redundancy that no one was praying for. That he's working even more remarkably. We look at a maternity ward, perhaps, and think that's a really good place to go if we want to see God's amazing power at work. And of course it is, isn't it? All that new life. This says, don't miss what's happening at a deathbed. And around the deathbed, too. Because that might well be the Lord doing something even more powerful and wonderful there. And I hope that's an encouragement. I think it's meant to be, as in our different ways and to our different degrees, we each go through suffering of all kinds, physical, mental, emotional, and so on. Things we're dealing with now, things we're worried might come in the future. And as individually and as a church, we feel our weakness in different ways too. Really quickly as we finish, what are some of the practical differences this should make? Here are a few ideas. We can be quite surprised by suffering sometimes, can't we? Well, we shouldn't be, this is saying. You know, sometimes we react. Where's this come from? As if the possibility of suffering must have been kind of buried, hidden deep in the small print somewhere, so we hadn't noticed it. We shouldn't be surprised at all, this says. That's how God often works in this world. In Jesus and in us too. So expect it. We can be embarrassed about it sometimes as well, can't we? I can't possibly let people know what's just happened to me. I can't possibly let people know how close to the edge I feel right now. That would be discouraging for them and humiliating for me. Don't be embarrassed, this says. That's the normal Christian life. Sometimes we assume suffering and weakness is always a sign that something's gone very badly wrong. We see someone facing nasty opposition, perhaps, for their faith. Maybe we feel it ourselves, or we see someone we really love on the end of it, too. And it's very tempting to think, you know, has the Lord lost control if that's happening? Has Satan got the upper hand for now? No, this says, the Lord's in charge. He's working there, too. And sometimes we lose any sense of hope, don't we, in suffering, and as we realise our weakness too. You know, as if nothing good could possibly come through this thing. And so maybe we kind of crawl to the edge of church life and think, I'm just going to wait here now until it goes away, or I might stay hiding here forever, to be honest, if it doesn't. When the Lord is saying, it might just be a sign we're right at the centre of something he's doing powerfully in our lives and the lives of others too. 
as he helps ordinary people like you and me to see him and want him and trust him and love him and grow more like him too. And so we reach those crazy sounding words in verses 9 and 10. Just look at them again. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Words that, apart from Jesus, make no sense at all. But in him make every sense. Be quiet for a few moments and then I'll leave this as we pray. Father in heaven, thank you for speaking to us through your word, for what we've heard you say. Please help us where we find these words unsettling. Thank you where we find them comforting. Thank you for working so wonderfully and so powerfully through the Lord Jesus in all of his suffering and weakness and shame. As we follow in his footsteps, help us to trust that you are still at work in power through the same things today. Would that encourage us when we know these things too? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.